Well, our children are being dismissed, and we're about to turn our attention once again to the tabernacle. Probably not quite halfway through today, I believe it is. And so we have a ways to go yet. I'd like to begin today by reading a text from a couple of Old Testament passages, and then we will rehearse where we've been over the last several Sundays, and then resume our journey and our study today. If you have your Bibles and would like to turn with me, turn with me to Exodus 25 and Leviticus 24. Exodus 25 and Leviticus 24. While you're turning there, I'd like to say that we're glad that you're here today. And it does look good to see Pastor Norris back with us today. After an absence of uh, several weeks, God bless you. And uh, he's, he's evidently manipulating that knee a little better. Making some progress. Chasing his wife around the house. No telling what else is going on there. Uh, I'm glad you're doing well, my friend. Amen. I imagine that's, I've never had to recover from that, but I think it would be, from what I hear, a tough one. In Exodus 25, I'm going to read verses 23 through 30, which give us the instructions that God gave about this table of showbread, as the scripture calls it. Verse 23, you shall make a table of acacia wood, two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold, and make a molding of gold all around. You shall make for it a frame of a handbreadth all around, and you shall make a gold molding for the frame all around. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and put the rings on the four corners that are at its four legs. The rings shall be close to the frame as holders for the poles to bear the table. And you shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold and the table may be carried with them. You shall make its dishes, its pans, its pitchers and its bowls for pouring. You shall make them of pure gold, and you shall set the showbread on the table before me always. Verse 30, and you shall set the showbread on the table before me always. You'll see here to the right of the stage a table with some bread. You will notice right away that it's not made of gold. There's a very good reason for that. I don't have any. And um, it would take a lot of gold to do what is described there. And so we've just provided the showbread, not so much the table. But let's move over to Leviticus chapter 24. And in this particular passage, instead of the table, we're reading about the bread itself. The scripture says in Leviticus 24 verses 5 through 9. And you shall take fine flour and bake 12 cakes with it, two tenths 
of an ephah shall be in each cake. You shall set them in two rows, six in a row, on the pure gold table before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each row, that it may be on the bread for a memorial, an offering made by fire to the Lord. Every Sabbath he shall set it in order before the Lord continually being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, for it is most holy to him from the offerings of the Lord made by fire by a perpetual statute. I'm also going to turn over to First Chronicles, if you'd like to turn with me there and read one more or two more verses. First Chronicles chapter 9. First Chronicles chapter 9. There is a passage that um, I find very interesting about those individuals who made this particular bread and how unique this bread was. It's, um, I think, I read first about this in history and then had to go back and find it in the scripture I think it's pretty revealing as we look at this total scenario today. First Chronicles chapter 9, verses 31 and 32. Mattathiah of the Levites, the firstborn of Shalom, the Korahite had the trusted office over the things that were baked in the pans. And some of their brethren of the sons of the Kohathites were in charge of preparing the showbread for every Sabbath. Now, doesn't somebody just want to shout at all these scriptures we've just read and how exciting they are? But I read those to let you know again As we look and examine the contents of the tabernacle and the way things are positioned, there is a very, um, a very good reason that the Lord has done what He has done. He gave very precise instructions. Meticulous detail is given about the construction of all the articles in the tabernacle, how it was to be positioned, what was to be done there. And even we are told in scripture about this particular family who bakes the bread that goes on this table every Sabbath day as it's replaced. History records that about this family, that this bread was so unique. Again, it is taken in on the Sabbath day, hot and fresh. It's put on the table where it stays for seven days. Throughout the goings on of the tabernacle every day. And then at the end of that period, they take that bread away from the table, replace it with new hot, fresh bread. And the table that is removed is then eaten by the priest. Now, that begs a question about how good that bread would be after sitting there for a week. And history records that this bread was of such a nature that it did not mold And it did not become stale. 
Well, that would be quite an accomplishment, wouldn't it, in those days especially. And so, the, uh, the family who baked that and who came up with this recipe, and, and we don't know what the recipe was, but the bread was supposedly so good and so good at resisting uh, becoming stale and moldy and that type of thing. It would last for a week and then still be good and desirable to eat. People wanted that recipe. And this family would not share what that recipe was. Because they, they felt that their assignment, their calling, the job that they had been given was so precious and so important. And this bread was for such a, a holy purpose. They did not want that recipe to be used in any secular way. And they sure didn't want it to fall in the hands of some people who would sacrifice it to other gods. So they refused to disclose the recipe and they wouldn't tell anybody how it was made. So eventually, because of that, someone in charge fired that family and found somebody else to bake the bread. Well, this family came in and they baked the bread and guess what happened? It got stale and moldy. And it wasn't long before they bought the original family back in to resume production of this holy bread that was to be put on the tables. I found that very interesting and then to see that it's it's confirmed in the scripture. It names the man in the family that was given the charge of baking that bread. I find that quite amazing. The Lord has a reason for doing exactly what he does. And sometimes, many times, for choosing the people that he desires to do that particular thing. So this morning as we, as we began to um, work our way through the tabernacle again, I'm going to come back. You'll notice things have changed a little bit from last week. We're missing our sides, but I figure by now you've got it. You understand. So when they would come to the tabernacle, they first come through the what? I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. Remember, the scene was the same, whether we're talking about the Old Testament tabernacle, which was largely a tent, or we're talking about the temple that came later. It was the same configuration that was there. You would enter into the courts. You would go through gates. I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. So I will enter his courts with praise. And the very first thing that you would see when you walk through the gates of the tabernacle would be the what? The brazen altar. The brazen altar was not for um, keeping warm. It was not for any trivial thing. Most of you remember, if you'll look at the next slide, please, the picture of the uh, temple that we have chosen to use for our example. If you look on the inner confines of the fence there, you'll see that there are animals in this vicinity. There are priests standing there. And the Bible tells us that when they brought in animals to sacrifice, and this would be individuals, you could bring in your lamb because you felt the need to come and worship. You could bring your lamb. The Bible was very explicit. If you come to offer a sin offering like that, you lay your hand on your lamb and you take that lamb's life. You spill its blood around the altar and it's then processed and cut up and placed on the altar and burnt there before the Lord. It was not a clean picture. It was not a sanitary thing to see or an enjoyable thing necessarily. 
God wanted to drive home the point that the soul that sinneth shall die. That's what the Bible says. And so sin must be punished. And that was the Lord's way of of starting them with their ABCs. Remember that? So that they could then learn to speak in complete sentences and then in paragraphs. That's the way we learn to talk. That's the way the Lord was teaching them here throughout this whole tabernacle configuration. Some very important principles. They just couldn't grasp the end that we understand today because we've been taught so much about scripture he had to start somewhere with them and the very first step was when you come through the gates of the tabernacle something's got to die and its blood has to be spilt to pay for your sins so you won't have to if you've got that would you say amen it wasn't pretty and it wasn't enjoyable enjoyable but it got the point across didn't it but it was all pointing forward in time to the perfect lamb of god Jesus was the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. So the very first sacrifice that was offered and all those thereafter were pointing forward in time to when Jesus Christ was going to hang on a cross and give his life and spill his blood for us. So they would, they would do that. And once that had been done, the next station as they moved now through the tabernacle was the laver. Now, it was last week, I think it was, been so much happened this week, I think I'm thinking straight here. We talked about the laver. The laver was was filled with water. It was a place for washing. It was a place for cleansing. Because obviously, after you had done what I described here, you, your hands would be dirty and you would be soiled. And so you would come here and wash your hands and your feet. And we discussed the laver and how it was much more elaborate than this. But it was a place of washing. But does anybody remember what the laver was made of? Bronze mirrors. The Bible says that all the women got together and brought their bronze mirrors. They didn't have these. In those days, the ladies had bronze mirrors, which were polished and polished and polished, just a piece of bronze. And then they could look in that and see their mirror in that metal. And the Bible says that the Women brought their mirrors together and they were, they were all melted and formed this laver that was filled with water. Which caused us, as we thought about the significance of that, the mirrors are made to take a good look at yourself. True. The, the Bible says that the that we look in the Word of God as if into a looking glass or a mirror, and we can see ourselves. Now, this is a very important point, because our human nature causes us, if we want to talk about looking around, we want to do this. We want to look at other people. We want to inspect them. We want to see what's wrong in their lives. Not a person's brave enough to say amen to that. That's human nature, is it not? Seldom do we take a look on the inside. That's not, that's not human nature. Human nature is to look out here and see what's wrong with everybody else. That's why Jesus, basically, and I'm going to paraphrase here, how dare you, Jesus said, 
You go over here and you're trying to clean the speck out of his eye and you got a two before in your eye. That's how ridiculous that principle is. So our job as Christians, once we come to the Lord and have been redeemed, and then we come to the laver for washing and for cleansing, we need to be concerned about us individually Instead of straightening everybody else out in the universe, we need to make sure that our hearts are clean and that we've, we've been washed in the blood and, and we have, have taken a good look and made sure that we are what we're supposed to be. Amen? The significance there is, is powerful. And then once we've done that, station one, the, the burn offering, station two, the labor, we come today to the third piece of of the furnishings in the tabernacle. And now I want you to notice that I've reconfigured this for a reason. Because now we've got the entrance to the tabernacle there with the gates. And this fence would have gone all the way around as you see portrayed on the screen there. But inside that fence there is what we call the tabernacle proper. And that's why I've put this here. Because we've got a gate to get into the tabernacle the, generally speaking, the courtyard, but as we've made our way forward past the burnt offering and the labor, now we come to the place where, from where I'm standing, let this be representative of the fact that there is a tent here. If we put a tent here, you can't see what's inside it. So, just understand that when I get to this point here, this is a door. That is a... This is a... That is a... This is a, so now I'm going to, I've already come into the gates. I've gone past the altar. I've gone past the labor. Now I'm going to go through the door of the tabernacle proper. And when I do that over to my right, there's going to be a table that's called the table of showbread. Now, if you look over to the left, there's the golden lampstand. If you go a little bit farther than those two, you'll see the altar of incense. And we're still to get to those. And then, of course, there's another veil that hangs there on the other side of the altar of incense. And behind that, now all of this is called where I'm standing now. This would be called the holy place. This is the holy place. The showbread, the lampstand, and the altar of incense. But once you go past the altar of incense, there's another veil. And behind that veil, there's only one thing. And that is the Ark of the Covenant. Where the Lord chose to dwell among the people of Israel in a visible and a manifest way. Now, as we, as we move forward today, what I'd like to do is to focus on the table of showbread and ask this question. What is the significance of that? We spent, we spent a lot of time the first Sunday talking about that altar. And we spent considerable time last Sunday talking about the labor. And today we're going to spend our time now talking about the table of showbread. What are we to learn from the table of showbread? Number one. We're going to learn that it represents the required unity of the body of Christ. Now, I know you watch TV and I know you've seen movies, so I don't even have to ask, do you? Have you noticed that when you do that, a lot of times they shoot a scene from different perspectives? 
Let's make the altar, for instance, our focus at the moment. There may be a camera shot from way up here somewhere looking down from that angle. And then there may be a, a, a camera shot looking from the floor level into this side. You know what I mean? It changes, right? From all directions. Well, that's what we're going to attempt to do today as we look at this table of showbread. We're going to examine it from different perspectives or different angles from what we're meant to learn by it from what it teaches us about God, from what it teaches us about us. And the first thing I want to share with you is you'll notice there are 12 nice, neat little loaves laying on that table, just like the Bible says there should be. Two rows of six. Hmm. I wonder why. Because those loaves were representative of the 12 tribes of Israel. Most of you know that you've read about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Israel had 12 sons. There we have the children of Israel, the Jews. They were, they were divided into those 12 tribes. Wherever they went, they camped about or around the tabernacle. And these 12 loaves represent the 12 tribes. So the 12 loaves represent the people of God. Amen. Are you with me? That is to say, it represents the required unity of the body of Christ. Listen, if you will, as I go to the New Testament. This is only one perspective. There are others that we'll examine. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 says that we are one body, but many members. Ephesians 2, 21 says we are fitted together. Ephesians 2, 22 says we're built together for a dwelling place of God through the Spirit. Ephesians 3 verse 6 says that we are fellow heirs of the same body. And Ephesians 4 16 says that we're joined and knit together. And 1 Thessalonians 4 17 says that eventually we're going to be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. Does that sound like to you that the togetherness of God's people is something that's important? I have a strong conviction that the Lord is very unhappy with the division that exists in what we know as Christianity these days. There's not a lot of, there's not a lot of unity there. We don't see each other as working for the same cause. I, I can tell you, it's nauseating to me that you can't even get churches and their pastors to get together in a community because they see each other as a threat to each other. That's sad. We're serving the same Lord, been redeemed by the same blood members of the family of God, and we see each other as competition and as enemies. Can't even work together. I know that breaks the heart of our Lord. And the Bible tells us we're one body. We're all on the same team. We're all trying to accomplish the same thing if we're, if we're really sincere about this. And we're not... We're not in competition. Listen, we're not in competition with any church in the world. 
All we want to do is come together and surrender our lives to Jesus and be who, who He's called us to be. And do what He's called us to do. And if that means a hundred people, fine. If that means 500 people, fine. But whatever he, he calls us to do and whatever He calls us to be, that's what we're supposed to be. But we're not better than any other church and no other church is better than this church. We're children of God, brothers and sisters in the Lord. And somehow we have to recognize the, the principle of the unity of the body of Christ as we look at this picture. Certainly in a local body, there needs to be that unity. I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, and and this kind of emphasizes that, where Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Y'all know what that means, don't you? Bearing with one another in love. The King James Version would say, forbearing one another in love. It simply means putting up with one another. We don't let our little idiosyncrasies divide us. Amen? We love one another. In spite of our differences, in spite of our preferences, we're not, we're not going to go around with our magnifying glass looking at other people. We're just going to try to take care of ourselves and make sure we're standing right before the Lord and do our best to serve Him and move forward. So the Bible says we're forbearing one another in love and endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's important to the Lord for there to be unity in His house. It's important for him for there to be unity in the body. And I think we see that pictured here as he, it was his idea. <laughs> it was his idea to put 12 loaves on a table like that, representative. Uh, listen, if you were there and there were thousands and thousands and thousands of Israelites who were encamped round about the tabernacle all around and boy, they had some problems getting along with each other sometimes. And this was to remind them, we're all one body. We're all God's people. We have to learn to forbear one another in love. Put up with one another. And keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why? Because verse 4 says, there is one body. And... One spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is above all and through all and in you all, we have to be one. We're his body. We can't be dysfunctional. We can't be all messed up with division and strife and those types of things. So I think as we look at this, it's a beautiful picture of the fact that we are one. Let's, let's look at, here's another little aside that came to me. When you come to this altar in the Old Testament right here, and you put your hand 
on your lamb and spill its blood and offer that sacrifice. This is the wording of the Old Testament now. To atone for your sins. Everybody got that? It was to atone for your sins. That would be an individual matter between you and God and this lamb, right? You were doing that. That was your decision. It's your actions. You had a desire to come and do what God had instructed. So you did this for yourself. That's you making that decision. That is an individual thing. And then when you move over here to the labor, this too is an individual thing. As you decide now you're going to live your life God's way and you open up his word and you study and you're being changed and you're being transformed by the renewing of your mind and you're doing everything you can to wash yourself and cleanse yourself. Listen, for too long, I I know what can wash away your sins. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. But once we have done that, once we've been born again, there's some, there's still some things that we have to deal with in our own lives. And we need to be washed and we need to be cleansed. And we don't depend on him to do all the washing. We have to do some of it for ourselves. Some things you have to do for yourself. Amen. I mean, I've always thought it was kind of crazy for whatever the... I'll just use the word addiction. I won't, I won't select anything. I'll just say addiction. Whatever the addiction is. Oh God, take it away from me. Please Lord, take this away from me. But yet you keep grabbing it. Oh God, take this away from me. But then you grab it. Oh God, how silly. Amen. Isn't it crazy to say, Oh God, take this away from me and you keep picking it up. So the point is, he will forgive us our sins, but we have to do some things. That's why the Bible says, sanctify yourselves. Now, the Bible also tells us that he will sanctify us, but he says, sanctify yourselves. You can be just as clean and washed as as you could possibly be. But if you keep going back like a pig to the mud hole, you're going to keep getting dirty. Amen? Or as the Bible says, like a dog returns to its vomit. If you keep going back to those things, you keep becoming defiled. So we have to, we have to be forgiven and washed by the blood. And then we have to come to the labor and, and do some things ourselves. I said years ago, it would be nice if the Lord had created a holy pill. So that if you needed to be holy, all you needed to do is take a pill. Sadly, it doesn't work that way. Because it takes some self-discipline, it takes, it takes the grace of God, it takes the Spirit of God convicting your heart in order for us to cleanse ourselves, as the Bible says, there's that word again, ourselves. Cleanse yourself from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. See, there's, there's, we need to do some of that. We can't depend on the Lord to do it all. And then we just keep going back doing it again. So we have to do some of that. And that's a personal thing, is it not? You have to do that. You have to make that decision. Ultimately, you have to say, enough is enough. I'm not going to touch that again. And if you do that, the Lord will give you the grace and strength to follow through with it. But that's a personal decision at the altar. And this is an individual personal decision that you have to make right here. But now things change because now I'm leaving the courtyard and I'm going into the holy place. Could everybody say holy place? 
I'm going into the holy place where the table of showbread is. And when I get here, it's not about individual anymore. Now it's about the whole body. Everybody's represented here. And so then we have to be concerned with, with the, the big picture and not our only ourselves. At the altar, we meet God individually. That's a private thing. At the laver, we wash and we look inwardly in the mirror at ourselves. That's a private thing. But at the table, the emphasis shifts from private to corporate. Scripture makes no case for individuals to remain solitary and private. You need the body and the body needs you. How many times as a pastor have I visited with people over the years who would say they love God, but I just sit at home and watch it on television because I don't like going to church. Well, bless their hearts. All they are is a crumb over here while the body's joined up over here on the table. God, this is the picture that God wants. He wants his people coming together. Amen? And he wants to work through us corporately. And he wants to do something. So when it comes to our walk with the Lord, he didn't design that we go through this solo. We need the body and the body needs us because we are one. We're joint. We've, we've read the scriptures. We're knitted together and joined together and we make up the body and, and everything is, is, is as it should be as God desires when we do that. By God's design, that's the way it is. And the closer you get to God, the more we will be in unity. Amen? In the body. The closer we get to the Lord. Ronnie Rose, please stand up. Chris, would you stand up? Gabe, would you stand up? Beth, would you stand up? Now, do you know, do you know what needs to happen here for us all to come together? Everybody here doesn't need to go where Ronnie is. Or everybody standing doesn't need to go where Chris is. Where do we all need to go? We need to come to where Christ is, right? So the key is we all move and gravitate to the same place. We spend time trying to get people to think about it our way. Oh, how divisive that is. If we all made up our minds, the only really thing that was important was Chris wanting to come to the altar and Gabe wanting to come to the altar and Ronnie wanting to come to the altar and Dad wanting to come to the altar and Beth wanting to come to the altar and the pastor. When we all come to Christ, we come in unity. Amen? Thank you. You all were about to have a heart attack wondering what you were going to have to do. A significant part of what this is all about is about the body and about unity. But number two, what are we to learn from the table of showbread? It represents God's provision for us. When you look at that, you're reminded of what the Bible, you're reminded of what Jesus said. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. 
We all need the bread of life. See, the fact of the matter is, you're looking at a guy here, he doesn't care much for bread. I mean, I really don't. I'll go buy a biscuit sometimes at Bojangles and take the biscuit and throw it away and eat the meat that's on it. I just don't like bread that much. Mmm. Tony's going to follow me around so he can get the biscuits. I, I, I'm just not a big bread eater. I don't really care for it that much. So I don't eat much bread. But I tell you, when it comes to the bread of life, that's a different story because we can't survive without Jesus. We've got to have him. And so this table here is, is representative of, because Jesus is the one that said it, I am the bread of life. And if you're going to make it, you're going to have to come to me. If any man hungers and thirsts, let him come after me. Let him partake of the bread. And so that's, uh, that's another lesson that we learn there. He is our provision. He is our sustenance. What else are we to learn from the table of showbread? Number three, that we are to present ourselves a living sacrifice because these loaves, after all, were an offering to the Lord. You see, they weren't just to sit there and be pretty. It was to teach them something. And that part of that something is that we're to present ourselves a living sacrifice. Because over here at this altar, when we presented ourselves a sacrifice here, something had to die to be burnt on this burnt altar to pay for our sins and atone for our sins. But when you get back here, we were offering to the Lord this bread in a different way. Because this bread wasn't burned on an altar. This bread, this bread sat there in a holy place all week. And at the end of the week when the fresh bread was bought in, do you know what happened to this bread? The priest ate it. It wasn't offered directly to the Lord, but it was given to the priest as, as part of their sustenance. But it was an offering that the people uh, were to understand was offered to the Lord. Now, each tribe was represented. Everyone was represented. All were a sacrifice. All were available for service. All participate corporately in that picture. An offering to the Lord. What else are we to learn from the table of showbread? Number four, that is that God provides or God invites us to eat. Anybody here besides me like to be invited to eat? The Lord invites us to eat. Now, wait a minute. Some of you are already thinking, well, wait a minute, there's something about this analogy don't work out. Because it was only the priests who were allowed to go in here and eat this bread. So that means that analogy breaks down because it's not for us all to eat. It's for the priests to eat. Well, just... Be patient just a minute. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, and I'm going to read verses 5 through 9. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 5 through I have written this down wrongly. 
Where's the passage that talks about us being priest before the Lord? That's what happens when you put this together, this part of it, right before service. 1 Peter 3. I see it here. It's 1 Peter 1. First Peter 2, here it is. First Peter 2 instead of 3. I'm going to begin reading at verse 4. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe he's precious, But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Verse 9 says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And may I point out to you in verse 5, we as Christians are called a holy priesthood. And in verse 9, again, we are called a royal priesthood. We believe in the priesthood of the believer. You do not need a priest To sit in a room where you can go and repent to him. The veil to the temple has been opened up from top to bottom. Signifying that the way has been opened up for us to go to Christ and talk to him directly. You need not a priest. All of us are priests in that respect. We can, aren't you glad you can go to the Lord yourself? You don't have to go to somebody else so they can go for you. You can go for yourself. The priesthood of the believer. All of us are priests. All of us have the right as members of the body of Christ and, and, and servants of that one Lord, one spirit, one God. We can go and talk with him and he'll speak to us and share with us and minister to us. It's called the priesthood of the believer. All of us. So yes, all of us have right to partake. All of us have right to eat. As a priest before the Lord, the priesthood of the believer, we can offer spiritual sacrifices. We minister before the Lord. We represent people to God and we represent God to people.
That's what a priest does. And that's what you and I are supposed to be doing. Wait a minute now, pastor. I'm, I'm not a preacher. I'm not an evangelist. I hate it when people say this. I'm just a Christian. Well, as just a Christian, we have the responsibility, according to the New Testament, to offer up spiritual sacrifices to the Lord. Some of you have done that today. Already. Some of you have offered spiritual sacrifices to the Lord. I mean, you were engaged in worship and your hands went up or your eyes were closed perhaps and you were just really worshiping the Lord. That's offering up spiritual sacrifices. And then you minister before the Lord. You serve before the Lord in various ways. And you represent people to God. How many of you have ever gone to the Lord in prayer in behalf of somebody else? Say, Lord, please. You're representing them before the Lord. And then you represent God to people. How many of you ever gone to somebody and told them about God, about Christ and what he could do for them? That's what you're doing. You're doing the work of a priest. You're trying to bring God and people together. You're trying to do the work that we see pictured here in this beautiful table as the people of God at the table of showbread. Every Sabbath, new hot bread was brought in. And this bread is eaten by the priest that's been here all week. It's fresh and it's new. Every day of our lives when we come before the Lord. This table of showbread is also called something else in scriptures. Our musicians are coming. And I think this is so significant. It's called the table of presence. Not P-R-E-S-E-N-T-S. But presence. P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E. Presence. Like there is a presence here. I feel the presence of the Lord here. And sometimes that table in Scripture is called the table of presence. I would submit to you that there's two reasons for that. Number one, just on the other side of that imaginary veil that's there, the presence of God was there. And that table was there, the table of bread representing the people of God. But by the same token, if you were looking from God's perspective now as we change, and he looks down and he sees that table, he said, that represents my people. The presence of the people is represented. The presence of God is represented. Both are needful for us to have a meaningful experience in the house of the Lord. Do you know how boring it would be if you came here on a Sunday and God wasn't here? Man, I'm going to tell you, it would be so dry and so dead. You wouldn't even want to be here. Neither would I. His presence makes all the difference. But do you know also how dead it would be if we didn't show up here? It'd be dead, wouldn't it? See, it takes the presence of God and the presence of the people. As we come together to make this a meaningful exercise on Sunday mornings. 
we are in, back here where the table is, we are in the holy place. You may not have known it until today, but we belong in the holy place. Today, we belong in the holy place. There's no, there's no, there's no veil to separate us from the holy place. We're priests of the Lord according to the scripture. We offer spiritual sacrifices. We minister before the Lord. We represent the people to God and we represent God to the people. Now, if you were a priest in the Old Testament and you had been working, and then all of a sudden, on the Sabbath, the family comes in, brings in all this fresh bread, and they take that off the table, and they replace it with others, that would be a special time for you if you had been a priest, because that meant that you now could eat that bread. It was... A delight, something that they look forward to. Which causes me to think in these terms, do we, do we feel that way about coming to the house of the Lord now? That it's a delight to us? That we look forward to coming so that we can offer up spiritual sacrifices because we have a holy hunger in our hearts and in our lives. And we so much want to give thanks to the Lord who has been so marvelous to us. We want to give Him glory and we want to feel His Spirit. Do we hunger and thirst after righteousness? Here's a promise from the Bible. They who hunger and thirst after righteousness shall be what? Filled. They who hunger and thirst... After righteousness shall be filled. Not sent away hungry. Not um, ignored. You don't, you don't get the Lord turning his back on you if you come and you're hungry. The Bible says we can be filled. This is an old song. Right where you're seated. I'd like for you just to, to listen to the verse. And then join in on the chorus. Like a woman at the well, I was seeking for things that could not satisfy.
welcome to come. Fill my cup, here um, as our brother continues to pray over there we don't want to disrupt that um, but we are entering a time of prayer so I think it's true and relevant here uh, before the church service uh, brother Mo spoke with me um, he wanted to give him requests for his brother Chet uh, he's requesting prayer he's having a heart catheterization this Friday um, and he's considered a high risk due to some kidney problems that he has so we want to lift him up today as well as this Friday when he goes in that God will bring him out on the other side if there are any prayer requests, please uh, feel free to speak out or raise your hand. If you can speak up so we can hear them, we definitely want to be able to hear so we can continue to pray with you this week. Anyone over here? Family? I see anyone else's hand over here. Yes, want to lift up their grandson who's having some breathing problems. Yes, keep the family from traveling and, and training this week. We want to keep them up. Anyone else in this middle here? Remember Jonathan. Gotcha. Yes, I want to remember Jonathan as he goes through that walk. Uh, as Pastor said earlier, the first step is us making a step against it. And God will meet us there to help deliver us. Amen. Anyone else over here? Charles. 
Yes, the granddaughter Mia starting college. she will be put completely asleep so that's a little scary and my dad had surgery on his throat Friday yes so remember her dad who had surgery and then Ashton's having surgery this weekend or this week okay traveling mercies for her uh, for sure um, if you don't mind, as we enter in prayer, can we sing that course one more time and then we will enter into prayer after that? Uh, let this be our prayer today that God would fill us up. Father, we thank you for the spirit that we have felt here today, Lord. We thank you for your presence, Father, and the word, Father, that is speaking so dear and true to us, Father, taking us not only back to our roots, Father, in Christianity, but helping us realize how relevant it is today, Father. Lord, you've heard each and every prayer request that has went up to you today, Father, for healing, for family members, Father, for deliverance, Father, for traveling mercies, Father, dear Lord, and for the lost, God. And we put those at the feet of your cross, Father, knowing that, Lord, when the veil was torn, Father, those prayers had been answered, Father. You've heard our needs, Father, and you will do in your due time what we know you always do and provide for us. So, Father, keep us safe as we go our separate ways this week, Father, and bring us back to worship you again when the church doors are open. It's in your name we pray. Amen.